Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. So he pulls up and the aircraft is on fire, but he determines he's going to come around and try to do a second run. The voice there of Queensland Air Museum volunteer Ian Campbell. Hello and welcome to this episode of Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills and I will be your host for a conversation that will take us back to 1942. Now for the past few years, Ian Campbell has been curator of the Air Museum's Bennett Vile archive, comprising the Don Bennett and Alan J. Vile collections. He's also researching a new biography of Toowoomba Boy, Air Vice Marshal Don Bennett. There hasn't been a biography of Bennett since 1996, and there has never been one written by an Australian. Now, Ian is a published author, and if Ian's biography of Pathfinder pilot Keith Watson, entitled Thinks He's a Bird, is anything to go by, this next one will be a cracking read. So, in this conversation, we're not talking about the Pathfinders. We are zeroing in on just one series of incidents in Bennett's life in 1942 when he took part in one of the RAF's bombing raids on the German battleship Tirpitz. So, here we go. So, Ian, uh, thanks for joining me. Let's talk about the Tirpitz. The Germans had two main capital ships, the Bismarck, which is the one that most people know, and its sister ship, the Tirpitz. Tirpitz uh, was about 42,000 tonnes. It uh, was quite fast as a battleship uh, for that size at about 31 knots, and it had an incredible armament. Uh, its major guns were eight 15-inch guns, and these could fire 22 and a half miles, about 36 kilometres. Um, also had uh, 12 5.9-inch guns, 16 4.1-inch guns, and by the time they had actually finished modifying the anti-aircraft batteries, they had about 50 of them on board the ship. So it was an absolutely formidable fighting platform. And, uh, so that's the armament. What about the armour? The armour, uh, it was very heavily armoured, which was why it was uh, at that 42,000 tonnes, mm. uh, including the deck armour. And one of the problems of that, of course, in the war, was that you needed bombs that could actually penetrate mm. uh, the decking. You might be able to inflict some um, superstructure damage but in order to blow the ship up you actually had, had to get through the deck and that needed um, some special bombs as mm. we'll discover at the end and what was the threat posed by these enormous battleships why were they such i mean obviously we can say they could sink other battleships but why were they so such a, a high value target they could uh uh, sink uh, ships in convoys and this brings us to this particular set of raids on the Tirpitz was back in June 41 Hitler had invaded Russia and Stalin had actually asked the Allies uh, if they could provide supplies up to the um, Arctic ports of uh, Mamansk and Archangel 
And uh, after June 41, about August 41, they started sending these convoys. They already knew as a result of the Bismarck getting out into the North Atlantic uh, early in 41, that uh, it could cause uh, terrible destruction to the North Atlantic convoys. And now here we had these convoys starting to come up through through the Barents Sea across the top of Norway and down into Archangel and Murmansk. And so they were very concerned, particularly Churchill, after the Tirpitz had done its ocean-going trials at Wilhelmshaven and it disappeared, uh, that <clears throat> this is early in January 42 was uh, very concerned that it might uh, sail out and start attacking those convoys. Mm -hmm. And so he issued an instruction to the Navy, to uh, the First Sea Lord Dudley Pound, and also to the Chief of the Air Staff of the RAF, uh, Charles Portal, to actually do what they could to disable it or sink it as quickly as they mm -hmm. could. Yeah, so, so looking back now, it's pr perhaps hard to envisage the importance of these convoys they were the lifeblood of these countries they were bringing in supplies food troops whatever and without the convoys you would strangle to death as a country and indeed later on the famous convoy pq-17 lost a majority of the ships uh sailing up uh, through the arctic waters mm. so uh, they represented a very real threat and to try to contain a ship of the magnitude the size, the capability of the Tirpitz required other capital ships. So the Allies, uh, in, uh, the Americans, the Brits were having to have ships there ready to intercept it, to try to knock it off uh, in the event that it got to sea, mm. which meant if they could actually sink it or disable it while it was in a Norwegian fjord, that's what they'd do. Mm. We'll talk about Norwegian fjords. So what was this, the strategy that the Germans employed to, um, to protect this ship? Now, apologies, dear listener. At this point in my recording with uh, Ian, unbeknownst to me, there was a technical glitch in my recording equipment and I was unable to use the section where he described the Norwegian fjord in which the Tirpitz had been moored. So I had to cut out just a small section of it. So what I will do is read to you from Ian's notes and then he will pick up the story. So the fjord ran west to east, narrowing at the eastern end with steep slopes. Tirpitz was moored close to the northern bank towards the eastern end, rendering a torpedo attack impossible. The fleet air arm was ruled out it had to be an RAF job. And it, had a, it was very steep-sided, and they had actually taken the turpits in there on the 16th of January and had parked it right at the far end, at the narrow end, on the northern side of the fjord. What they had then done is they had camouflaged it. They had put a torpedo boom in place to prevent any attacks by torpedoes down the fjord. Uh, they had mounted searchlights along both sides of the fjord, um, AA batteries uh, to take out any planes, and they were also installing smoke pots. So if there was any warning that uh, an air raid was coming, they would actually start to fill the fjord with smoke. Mm. But the issue that 
the Allies had but even before that was that the weather in the fjords was very fickle. It was very changeable. And you could actually leave on the base, leave uh, England to stage an attack uh, somewhere in the fjords on the basis of a Met forecast that said it was good. And by the time you actually got across the North mm. Sea and got there, it was uh, clouded over mm. or foggy or Two whatever. hours later. Mm. And very, very difficult then mm. to attack. Okay, um, so you've got this enormous <coughs> threat. You've got it, it, which is a very high priority. I think Churchill said it has this has to be a priority and it's an impossible task on paper. Uh, you've got the, the physical conditions of the weather and the fjord itself. You've got the defences that the Germans have placed there. You've got the limitations of, you know, aerial bombardment and, and the, the, the weapon systems that are even available at the time to the, to the English. It's an important point because... Uh, they were, uh, it was in the early stages of taking delivery of the four engine bombers, the Stirlings, the Halifaxes, the Lancasters would be coming soon afterwards. Um, the RAF had had a very poor record of actually bombing German ships in good terrain. Hmm. They'd been trying to bomb them in Brest, etc., and were having great difficulty doing it even then. So uh, it's a long way from this talk later in the war of precision bombing, etc. But this is what was expected of them, mm. that they would actually do it um, in this fjord. So they make a couple of attempts. Uh, with, with So how did they start? Within three days. So on the 29th, so mere days after uh, Churchill had issued the instruction, they sent in... Uh, some Stirlings and some Halifaxes. Now, bearing in mind this is winter. Mm. 29th winter, of January, 1942. 1942. It's mm -hmm. winter. Yep. And uh, they had enormous problems they didn't even get any well they got one aircraft there and uh it missed and uh, aircraft got iced up they got there to find that the weather was terribly poor uh and basically the whole thing was was a disaster so they had to come back and rethink the whole thing they went back again two months later on the 30th of March and they decided to do it differently this time. They were going to send in uh, two waves of aircraft. The first lot, they'd uh, given up on the Stirling, mm. so the Halifaxes would actually come and use a new bomb that they had, a 4,000-pound bomb uh, called the Cookie. Mm -hmm. They had been using 2,000-pound armour-piercing and 500-pound armour-piercing um, but now that they had these 4,000-pound cookies, they were going to use those, and they were going to send the first wave in and drop those in from between six and 8,000 feet. Now they had another idea for us, the second wave, which is that they would fit them with Mark 19 naval mines. Now, these had a 100-pound explosive in them, and they were set with hydrostatic uh, fuses such that if you could drop them next to the mm. tur pits and let them sink to around about 30 foot they would have a concussive impact on the plates and if you'd managed to actually drop them near the stern you might do uh, in the rudder or the screws which was what happened and to Bismarck did, which is what hands. happened to the Bismarck so these are depth charges they're dropping so uh, yes and um, funnily enough with uh, no capacity for precision and flying quite close to the wall, the northern wall of the uh, of the fjord. Um, their job is to 
uh, get as close as they can and drop them between the port side of the tur pits and the shore because if you can do it right there and towards the rear of the, uh, the ship, it explodes with concussive force and may, have, um, mm. may do the damage. How did it go? It went terribly badly. They, no damage at all. The uh, first wave came in. They bombed from on high. Nothing was hit. And they sent the second wave in, and they came in at 600 feet. And they actually managed to get seven aircraft through, but trying to bomb with that level of precision, no damage was done. So if we're, we're in March, April of 1942. Complete failure so far to even make a dent on this battleship. Um, enter Don Bennett. Enter Don Bennett. On the 14th of April, he assumed command of 10 Squadron RAF Leeming. And it's probably worthwhile just giving a little bit of background mm. on... He had been uh, in the Air Force... Uh, between 30 and 35, and he'd come out uh, in August 1935, got married, considered a job back in Australia, um, decided it wasn't for him. He went and flew flying boats for Imperial Airways from January 1936 right through into the war. And uh, in about August, July 1940, um, the proposal came up to fly American bombers across the North Atlantic, uh, and this was what was to become called at Ferro or the Atlantic Ferry Organisation. And he was called in as part of a team to go to Canada and America to get Hudson bombers and to inaugurate flying across. Mm the North Atlantic. Previously, what they had done with the bombers is to actually take them to the Canadian coast, dismantle them, put them on board ship, sail them across, uh, reassemble them, test them, and then send them off to RAF squadrons. And, of course, this was an incredibly slow mm. and expensive exercise, not to mention the fact that numbers of these ships as they crossed the mm. North Atlantic were sunk by U-boats. So it was, was it primarily a navigation issue like getting these aircraft across the Atlantic well they had to do work on range navigation meteorology Mm. it's a whole separate story in itself Mm. but he as flying superintendent actually played a pivotal role in starting that up and in fact led the first um, flight across Um, and around about um, July 1941, uh, it was taken over by the RAF, uh, became Ferry Command, and he came back to rejoin the RAF. Mm-hmm. Um, and at first he went, he was posted to a navigation school at Eastbourne as second in charge, which was a bit of a snub for him, mm. given his contribution already to the, um, mm. to the war effort. And he was made an acting wing commander and he applied for operational duty and was sent as commanding officer of 77 Squadron flying Whitley's at RAF Leeming. And he arrived there in December uh, 41. And he was there 
over about four or five months and he flew 17 operations on the Whitleys, spending a lot of time working with the crews on navigation issues, etc. Uh, and then on the 14th of April, as the planning is taking place for the third raid on the Tirpitz, he comes in as the commanding officer of 10 Squadron and he will lead the 10 Squadron Halifaxes into attacking the Tirpitz. And what was that plan then for the April raid that he was going to, to lead Number 10 Squadron for? Well, some lessons had been learned from the raid in on the 30th of March. Uh, but even Bennett would say afterwards uh, what they came up with was uh, a pretty stupid idea. <laughs> What was they that? Were to do, they were to do the two waves again. So they're going to send the first wave of Halifaxes and also this time they were going to send some Lancasters in. And they would come in and they would bomb from six to 8,000 feet using the cookies, as had happened the previous month. Now, the second wave would be 35 Squadron and 10 Squadron of which he was now the commanding officer, they were the ones to carry the Mark 19 mines. Now, instead of coming in at 600 feet, they were now to come in at 200 feet. And the powers that be had realised that the possibility of actually, with precision, dropping one of these mines between the port side of the Tirpitz and the shore and letting it sink down uh, was likely not very high. Mm -hmm. So what they said was, why don't you consider the possibility of dropping it on the steep hillside, or the cliff, and let, it, let the mines bounce down towards the Tirpitz, drop into the water, sink down and go bang. Mm, sounds plausible. Now... <laughs> Because of the steep-sided nature of the fjord and the fact is that they were to fly in along the northern side of the, uh, the fjord uh, at night time, around about midnight, in a full moon, with flak on both sides and searchlights. At 200 feet? And then at 200 feet dropped their bombs on the hillside. The likelihood was about the likelihood of dropping it in the water next to the turpids. And how high was this cliffside, this this mountain? It was a 400-foot right, cliff. Right, So, uh, and in order to do what they call the timed run, they were to come in from an island on the west, the western end of the fjord, and to line themselves up on the northern wall of the fjord and to fly straight down that, pretty much in darkness, mm. uh, and do a timed run. And they were told that uh, if they hit a smoke screen, because they were now aware, having done two raids on the Tirpitz, that they had these smoke pots generating this smoke, that uh, they were to fly straight into the smoke screen and doing their timed run, just uh, navigate on dead reckoning and uh, just, just drop it when, when they felt that uh, mm. they'd reached the spot. Yeah. And at the end, because they were flying so low, as soon as they had dropped the mines, they were to do uh, a very rapid exit mm. out of the end of the, the fjord, uh, turn to port, uh, fly back over the top and then back to the staging point in um, Scotland. So obviously it, it 
you do what you can. You're desperate at the time, and you try anything, don't you? I suppose within reason. Uh, they tried that. That was again a failure. So now, tell us about the raid that that uh, Bennett himself led. So he was he was in command, and they were flying Halifaxes. How how familiar was he with the Halifax? He only had three hours on the Halifax prior to the raid. Uh, a little bit more with the flying from Leeming up to Lossiemouth, which was the staging point. Mm. Uh, for the operation. Uh, but yes, uh, he had had uh, only three hours. And leading up to this raid, which was the what raid, the third raid on the 27th of April, they'd had very little time to practice. And one of the issues that they had with these mines was they had to modify the bomb bay doors because the bombs didn't actually fit into the bo- Halifax bomb bays mm. as they were. And in fact, they were issued with an instruction because they didn't fit all the way into um, uh, back into the bomb bay, was that they were to hand crank the bomb bay doors shut. They weren't to use the hydraulics. Uh, when Bennett got into his particular Halifax, the one he was going to fly, B for Baker, W1041, um, he took off and he was doing his fuel consumption tests when he realised, having an is- issued a very stern instruction to all flight crews not to use the hydraulics to close the Bombay doors, that he had used the hydraulics to close the Bombay doors oh dear. and damaged them. Mm. And it's reported, I guess with some glee, that Wing Commander Bennett had a very quiet word to the... Um, the ground crew to actually wire the Bombay doors so that they worked and he flew with that um, temporary fix uh, on the raid itself on Mm. the 27th. Mm. Goodness. Um, Now, tell me about flame floats and and what's what's that part of the story? Well, what they... When they finally took off uh, at 1,700 hours on the 27th, Bennett was very keen to fly out the front of the other 10 squadron Halifaxes. And because of his navigational prowess, he had worked out, given it was a nice calm day over the North Sea, that the best way to show them all the way to the target, uh, at least to the Norwegian coastline, was to drop these flame floats. And uh, they flew very low, and all the crews following along behind could actually see this line of of uh, flame floats um, all the way ahead of them and were actually able to follow all the way across the North Sea and that made their navigation an awful lot easier. Hmm. Okay. So that's the the nascent uh, Pathfinder's idea, I suppose, in a way, isn't it? That's right. He was a Pathfinder for them. Mm. Okay, so tell us tell us what happened then. They take off, they're heading, they, they get across to Norway. So the first... The raid was actually a 90-minute raid. 90 minutes, okay. Yes, and the first part of the raid actually went for 50 minutes. So the first wave went in. This was the uh, Halifaxes and the Lancasters dropping their cookies from six to 8,000 feet. Right. And the idea was to either hit the turpits or hit either side of the fjord and disrupt the defences. And so they went about their work for 50 minutes. And then the second wave comes in. And by the time the second wave is coming in carrying the mines, um, the Germans are clearly well aware of uh, Mm. the raid has been taking place for a long period of time and have filled 
basically filled the fjord with smoke. Smoke. Mm. And 35 Squadron comes in first. They do their thing. They get a number of Halifaxes through to where the Tirpitz is, but don't actually hit it. 10 Squadron is coming in last, and of those, Don is flying one of the last aircraft. So of the 90-minute raid, he is one of the last aircraft to come in. And I have a description from one of the other 10 Squadron uh, Halifaxes coming in, flying into that fjord and hitting the smoke screen. It's by Jack Watts, who was their bomb aimer. Uh, they're coming in on a timed run, I think I said, from Salt Island, which is mm. at the western end of the fjord. And once they hit Salt Island, they press the... Uh, start the clock. The, they mm. start the clock mm. and then they fly in along the northern side of, mm. the, of the fjord. And mm -hmm. he writes... At that very moment, we flew into a smoke screen so dense it seemed to be solid. It was flying like flying in cotton wool. There was no sense of motion, no spatial relativity. We knew that we were thundering alongside a solid rocky cliff wall, practically brushing it with our wingtips and speeding towards an even higher and equally solid cliff wall not far ahead, all sight unseen. We'd reached the end of our timed run. The turpits must be dead ahead of us, almost underneath us now. I pressed the bomb release and we pulled up at full throttle, hoping against hope we'd not miscalculated. No one would have wished to end their life like a fly squashed on the wall. Mm. Uh, the mind boggles, doesn't it? These, these young blokes in these aircraft doing this... I mean, just take a moment. <laughs> uh, that description really brings it home to me, you know, the, the terror of what they're trying to do. And it's all over in a few minutes, either one way or the other for them, isn't it? But, but what a terrifying... These, these chaps hadn't had a chance to really even practice this, had they much? These guys had two days. Uh, flying around Scotland, they were told to find uh, some steep hillsides and fly as close as they could to them. And when they weren't doing that, they were given three-dimensional models and told to actually mm. memorise the models and to uh, fly into the fjord on the basis of uh, two days' practice and, and having looked at the models. Now, you say Bennett's aircraft was one of the last in. Now, that's got to be the most vulnerable position to be in hasn't it when you've got enemies ranging fire at you so so what happens next then when they came in well they came in and Bennett himself claims that uh, when they hit the smoke screen it came as a complete surprise um, it may well have been as to how quickly it had, it had, mm. it had hit them uh, in terms of how far up the fjord it had, it had actually come rather than simply being based around the ship. Uh, but, of course, they were now about 80 minutes into the raid and the smoke had, had, had full effect. Uh, but they came in at 400 feet uh, to descend on the timed run uh, to 200 feet. Uh, I've had a look at the distance there and coming in the timed run would be less than a minute. Uh, so this was all happening very, very quickly indeed. And uh, he says that almost as soon as they hit the smoke screen, uh, the, inf the uh, superstructure of the ship passed beneath them. And he had determined on a, uh, doing a second time round. They had come in, I should say, at, uh, at 400 feet. Uh, some of the anti-aircraft batteries were firing down on them. Mm -hmm. 
down on them by the time they were descending onto where mm. the turpits was the the, the gunfire yep. was coming in on them um, so they passed over the turpits and he pulled up sharply and he says as he did they became a sitting duck uh, the plane sh- uh, slowed very rapidly and as they started to turn to port they were hit they were hit in a number of places but in particular they were hit in behind the right inner engine and uh, set the plane on fire Um, the rear gunner mick howe uh, recalls um, the wing being hit and what he did is he rotated his uh, turret around to have a look and uh, uh, he used an expletive and said that he was scared, mm. but at that very point he himself was hit, blew all the perspex out of the uh, 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 rear the gunner's turret, and he was actually hit in the face. And he, through the um, the intercom, he sent a message to Bennett that he had been hit, and Bennett supposedly said, "Okay, now keep quiet." Uh, it turns out later that uh, Bennett had in fact asked him how he was, was he okay? And he said, yes, I am okay. And he said, okay, now keep quiet. Uh, Bennett having a whole pile of things to yeah, deal plenty with. plenty of things on his mind, yeah. So he pulls up and the aircraft is on fire, but he determines he's going to come around and try to do a second run. And uh, the, at this point, the fire is spreading and he's to the north, uh, northwest of the turpits of the fjord, and uh, he turns south again, and he comes back across the top of the fjord, and he says, and I dropped the mines where I thought the turpits was. I often wonder where they went. Hmm. Well, we do know where they went. He, was in, he had, in fact, travelled a lot further. He had passed over the top of the fjord, and he was about four and a half miles away, and he had actually dropped the mines uh, onto a farm down hmm. to the uh, uh, to the southeast of, of where the Tirpitz was. Now, now this, this is all point, with the aircraft on fire. The aircraft is on fire. What's the crew of the Halifax? How many were in there? Uh, they had seven. Seven, like the Lancaster. Yeah. Mm. And uh, so he's wrestling with the aircraft, and at this point, the um, fire appears to die down. So he decides, okay, maybe we can actually make it back across Norway, back across the North Sea, back to Scotland. Mm. And he hasn't gone terribly far, having turned west, when in fact the fire actually bursts forth even more and is progressing towards the fuel tank, uh, towards the engine, etc. He tries the fire extinguisher. It doesn't work. So the uh, engine, the, the uh, fire is blazing away towards the fuel tanks. And at this point, he orders a bailout. Right. Now, knowing that how the rear gunner is injured, he sends Colgan, his flight engineer, down to the back of the aircraft to get Howe out, open the doors, get him out, get his uh, parachute on and get him out. And as Colgan departs, Bennett realises he doesn't have his parachute on. Bennett doesn't have a parachute. Bennett doesn't have his parachute on. Colgan, having left the cockpit, sees Bennett's parachute. He turns around, comes back, clips Bennett's parachute on before going back down to get Howe out. Mm. He gets down to the back of the aircraft, gets Howe out, gets his parachute on. They both get out the back hatch. Meanwhile, at the front, 
the other air crew, the uh, <clears throat> uh, second pilot, the two wireless operators, navigator, have all managed to clear out, get out through the front escape. Some of them hitting the ground within seconds mm. of leaving the aircraft. Mm. The uh, Halifax is now at 200 feet. Uh, the right wing is fully ablaze and it explodes. Uh, Don's holding the wheel hard over to port and he's got to get out of the aircraft as fast as he can. He snags his parachute twice before he gets to the escape hatch and he gets out of the escape hatch and he hits the ground Almost immediately, the parachute has just time to uh, to, uh, to open. Open, and he hits the snow. Fortunately, it's in an area that is not as heavily wooded as everything around them. But the plane has exploded, and it was observed by a Norwegian farmer who happened to be up after midnight and had heard this plane approaching and had seen it fully ablaze, mm-hmm. <laughs> and. As it was diving towards the ground, he saw this person exit. (laughs) Uh, It's quite an incredible story. So he actually survives on the basis that Colgan had presence of mind Mm. to return and clip his chute on, and then it gave him just sufficient amount Mm. uh, to actually stall a little bit, and then he hits the snow on the ground. Tell us what happened to these seven. Well... Uh, the first fellow, uh, Tom Isles, he was all by himself and uh, he ba- became convinced he was being uh, followed by a wolf pack or, or wolves and he had actually crossed uh, one of the streams heading north and uh, had, his feet had frozen up pretty quickly, got frostbite mm. and he had actually gone into one of the local Norwegian villages and because uh, they, the, some of the Norwegians... Uh, were concerned about um, the Germans and the rest of the collaborators Mm. had um, Mm. turned him in. Mm. So he ended up in um, uh, one of the Stalags in Germany. Mm -hmm. Then um, two others, um, John Murray and Mick Howe. Mick Howe, the um, rear gunner, Mm -hmm. uh, they had caught up with one another and they had actually managed to make it to a nearby hut and they had hiked the following day, but their, their compass had gone bad on them. And they ended up going in a full circle, walked all day in the snow and ended up going full circle and found themselves back at exactly the same hut, at which point the Germans uh, were on their tail. The yeah, Germans. So that's, that's interesting. I mean, the Germans knew they had bailed out and they were after this crew. They knew they were there somewhere, so the, they were hunting them. Well, the Germans were there at the crash site the following day mm. and had realised that there were no bodies, so they had, they had seven crew that they had to track down. And uh, so they, they, were, uh, they were following tracks through the snow. Mm. Um, so these guys, they had... Um, uh, Mick and John, they'd been wandering around and come back to the same hut and they were absolutely exhausted. Mm. And uh, Mick Howard lost his boots uh, Mm. in leaving the aircraft. They'd found Mm. an old pair of boots in walking during that day, but clearly that he was in a bad way. And the Germans had sent the um, Norwegians, some local Norwegians up to pick them up and they were captured uh, and interrogated. And then we've got... 
two other pairs. We've got um, we've got Harry Warnsley, who was the second pilot, and John Colgan, who was the flight engineer. They had met up with one another, and although they had been warned not to go to this uh, single railway line and road combination that ran between uh, Norway and Sweden. It was the one road, one rail line that went east-west. They were warned not to go there. They decided that that was really the best option. And through some absolutely remarkable coincidences of connecting with some very helpful Norwegians over a period of about three days, they tracked along the, um, the rail line avoiding the Germans uh, and managed to uh, get their way through to Sweden mm. and were taken off to the uh, Fallon internment camp in Sweden. So they made it, which leaves us with Don and Clive Forbes. Don himself, having picked himself up and realised that he was not injured, remarkably so, his first thought, as he says in his memoirs, was to get back to Lee or at least get a message to Lee, his wife, to let him know he was okay. So he sets off heading east. Um, the distance to the Swedish border is 25 miles, 40 kilometres. And uh, he's trudging through the snow and he's going to stay away from the main road uh, if he can stay away from the rail, rail line and he's about to walk across a creek in um, in the early dawn when he sees another man there and the man goes for his pistol and they realise they realise that uh, this is Wing Commander Don Bennett and this is his um, uh, wireless operator Clive Forbes staring at one another in the, the semi-darkness and they mm. they start hiking together <clears throat> and they actually spend three days um, going from one place to the next going and knocking on doors and they're taken in but the Norwegians realise that the Germans are chasing after them and are moving them on very quickly so uh, although Don and Clive are, are, are marching through the day, um, they're not allowing them to stay at their um, at their huts overnight. They keep passing them from one to the next to the next, and as a result, they make it to the the border, and uh, they hightail it as quickly as they can into Swedish territory. And it's a bit of a funny story here because at around about 10.30 at night, they've arrived at this large building and they've peered in the windows and they've seen men in uniforms um, uh, dancing with their, um, with their partners and they knock on the door and this girl opens the door and seeing these two dishevelled gentlemen staring at her slams the door in their face and they turn around to walk off to find two burly gentlemen standing behind them. And they're standing staring at one another, at which point one of these gentlemen says, hello, welcome to Sweden in perfect English. <laughs> what? So they knew that they actually were in Sweden <laughs> and safe. And so they were welcomed in to this group. They were at a ski resort called um, oh. um, Storvallen, oh, a couple of miles from Storlian, which was the border town which was roughly where they were aiming for. And so they were warmly welcomed into Sweden until a certain Captain Skoch of the Swedish army arrived. He was quite an officious character. And uh, he puts them under arrest, locks them up. 
and his job officially is to um, uh, do some sort of initial interrogation, then arrange for them to be transferred to the internment camp. Well, during the following day, Don uh, manages to get this fellow to become less officious over time and persuades him that it's a really good idea if he sends a telegram to Lee mm-hmm. over in England. But Don has a good laugh about this because um, uh, Captain Skoch has to send it under his own name. Now, the deal that Don and Lee had in the event that he was ever shot down uh, over the continent was that he would just telegram one word, love. And... And she would know he's okay. And she would yeah. know he's okay. Yeah. So oh, back at RAF <laughs> Leeming, Lee Bennett receives love from Captain, Captain. Scott, Swedish <laughs> Army Stallion. Right. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> Absolutely magnificent. Uh, which set her off mm. to grab Strang Graham, who was the uh, base commander, and grab an atlas and try to find out where this place was. As it was, Don then... Uh, spends an eventful month in Sweden. It's a story which we won't go into. Mm. And he uh, ends up back in England exactly one month after he had been shot down. Goodness. So, and Clive as well. So he got back at the same time, did he? No, Clive had to stay uh, behind. Okay. Uh, Don got back along with Harry Walmsley because they were both pilots and because of a particular trick that uh, Don pulled, but we will we will keep that keep under that. wraps. Aha! Uh-huh. Yes, this will be. Wait to purchase the book. Let's and, and you get let's that story. just understand <laughs> that the great Don Bennett is one who is very rarely denied. Okay. Well, that's a, a very, a sufficiently mysterious for the man. Well, what happened next then? Ian, he, he's back in England. He's reunited with Lee and, and back into a, a command. What, what what happens next? Well, he goes back to commanding 10, Ten Squadron. squadron. Mm-hmm. And then just five weeks later, he's called into the office of uh, Bomber Harris, who's the commander of Bomber, Bomber Command. Command, yeah. And he's told that he will be the air officer commanding of the newly constituted Pathfinder Force. Wow. And he's awarded a DSO at that point, I think? He, he is awarded DSO, and it's very interesting because I have the citation here and I'd like to read it. Hmm. Uh, He was given the Distinguished Service Order, and Walmsley, who was his second pilot, was given the Distinguished Flying Medal. And this appeared in the London Gazette of 16 June 1942. One night in April 1942, Wing Commander Bennett and Sergeant Walmsley were the captain and second pilot, respectively, of an aircraft which attacked the German naval base in the Trondheim Fjord. In spite of a fierce defensive barrage, the attack was carried out and at an extremely low level. The aircraft was hit by shellfire and later burst into flames. Wing Commander Bennett and Sergeant Walmsley were forced to escape by parachute, but both landed safely in occupied territory. 
Both Wing Commander Bennett and Sergeant Walmsley displayed, displayed excellent resource, and after escaping from German soldiers and police, they eventually reached Swedish territory after a most arduous and trying journey across snow-clad mountains. Throughout, both Wing Commander Bennett and Sergeant Walmsley displayed courage, initiative, and devotion to duty of the highest order. Mm. Which was true. Mm. A fascinating chapter in his fascinating life, and there is so much more to tell. We will look forward to your book when it comes out, the biography of uh, Air Vice Marshal Don Bennett. Uh, Any idea how far down the track that might be? How long is a piece of string, Yes, exactly. Well, keep keep on keeping on because we really need to have this record uh, and, and these stories told. Thank you for what you do here and for all of the work you do, beavering away in that archive there and also in researching these stories. Uh, I guess Don Bennett lives in your head sometimes. Uh, any biographer would know. But it's been great to hear from you today. Thank you for that little snapshot. We've left out so many details, but you've given us a very compelling story of something that uh, many of us, including myself, had not known before. Ian Campbell, thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. So that's our episode. Thank you very much for listening. Next week for the final episode of Season 3, Episode 16, uh, you'll hear a conversation I had recently with Mark Kelly. Mark has a very long career as a pilot, beginning with the Air Force and then going into commercial aviation. So we talk, we touch on a lot of the elements of his flying career, particularly as he piloted the final flight of the Queen of the Skies when the 747-400 of Qantas uh, had its last flight over Brisbane and uh, he was pilot on that flight. And uh, we talk about that, but we also talk about the fact that when he was uh, an Air Force pilot, he flew the F-111s. And uh, Mark is one of the few people who is able to speak about a successful ejection from his F-111 and uh, what happened and why and what the result was. So the ejection from F-111A8137, Mark Kelly as pilot, Al Kerr as his uh, navigator. That's next week. We talk to Mark Kelly. Come down and see us at the Queensland Air Museum if you can. We would love to see you. We've had lots and lots of people this year coming through the front doors. It's been so good to see big crowds, lots of different uh, demographics, children, elderly people, families, individuals, school groups. Uh, And, you know, it's just wonderful to have that buzz when people come in and they are just wowed by our displays and they get to learn uh, about the experiences of these aircraft as they are guided around. So why don't you come in too? And if you haven't already, and if you have, come back and see us again. You can come back, you know. We'd love to see you more than once. So that's our episode. Thank you for listening. Bye for now.